And the man who was driving the vehicle was 27 years old. He was married. He had two children, two young girls. And when he hit Kent, his brother and his sister-in-law testified in court that he had been at the bar with them drinking. He had drunk two liters of wine and quite a bit of vodka before he left the bar. And unaware, his brother was unaware that this man actually took his car, his brother's car. You see, this man had already had three driving under the influence arrests. He had already spent time in prison for driving under the influence. He had already paid many prices. In fact, his license had been suspended. He should not have been driving at all. He didn't even own a vehicle. He went, he got his brother's vehicle and he drove it intoxicated. And he was driving down the highway and he struck Kent Matthews. Kent was throwing from his bicycle and the bike was attached to the front of the vehicle for quite a long ways before this Frenchman understood and actually realized what had happened. And when he realized what had happened, he stopped the car, he went out to the front, he grabbed the bicycle, he threw it into a ditch. And then he got back in the vehicle, he drove to the next county over, he removed all identification off the car, he filed off the license, he took the license plate, he filed off the identification numbers, he put it in the trees, he set it on fire, and he left. It was difficult to identify who the rider was because when they found the bicycle, that's where they found the identification of the rider who had been killed. But within 72 hours, the French authorities had made an arrest and had a confession out of this man. And Alice Matthews and her husband received word of their son's death and the tragic circumstances surrounding it. And six days later, there was a trial. And they were asked to come to France and to attend the trial. And she said the most difficult part of that trial was sitting there watching this 27-year-old man winking and laughing. He was winking at his family. He was no repentance whatsoever. No remorse. No sign of, of guilt from this man. And they sat and endured this trial and heard the gruesome details and saw the pictures. And she said, each night we would go back to our hotel and I had to wrestle through my anger. I was angry with this man. Angry that he would drink and that he would do it again and he would get in the car again. I was angry that he would make this choice again. He showed no sign of remorse until the sentencing when the judge sentenced him to two years in prison. And that was in 1994, May. He's clearly out of prison. He has never repented, never asked for her forgiveness. She's supposed to forgive him. Is she supposed to forgive this man? My guess is 
Most of us, because we're in church world today, but also because we're in this therapeutic country that has gurus like Oprah and Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, we would all say, yes, she's supposed to forgive him. Forgive and forget is this naive cliche that we throw around in our nation, in our country. We're going to look at a text of scripture. And for the next two weeks, we're going to look at this issue of forgiveness. And my guess is some of you will be shocked at what Christ has to say about forgiveness. My guess is some of you will be disturbed. Some of you may quit coming to church. Some of you might write me notes and throw them at me while I'm up here. But don't shoot the messenger. Luke chapter 17, we're going to spend the next two weeks in two verses. And in this passage of scripture, Jesus is teaching his disciples. And I just want to look at Luke 17 verse 3 today. Luke 17 verse 3 says this. If a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. We're going to be wrestling through what does true forgiveness look like the next couple of weeks. And clearly here, Jesus is talking about folks who know each other very well. He says brother or sister. He is referring to people who are also disciples. He's referring to people who are also followers of the way, followers of Jesus. And so when he says a brother or sister, he says, whenever they sin against you. Has anybody ever had someone at church? Well, let's, let's get, make it easier. Someone at the Lutheran or Presbyterian church sin against you. <laughs> the Baptists. Assembly of God. Nazarenes. This church. Has anyone ever had a brother or sister sin against you? You know, if you haven't had that happen, you aren't breathing anymore. It's just part of living in this world. It's part of having brothers and sisters. People hurt one another. The interesting thing, though, that we have to keep in mind is that Jesus wants to make sure we understand that it is when somebody sins, not when somebody's annoying, not when somebody is irritating, not when we don't like somebody, not when somebody is those personalities we just don't click with, can't get along with, not those situations, and those happen, and that's not sin. They're just annoying. It's not a sin to be annoying. Thank God for some of you, right? It's not a sin to be irritating. It's not a sin. It's not really productive, perhaps, but it's not a sin. There are some people that just rub you, rub me the wrong way. That's why they're at the Nazarene church, the Lutheran church, the Presbyterian (laughs) church. There are those people that just, it's hard to get along with. Whatever reason, we're just not compatible with them. And it's not a sin to not be compatible with people. That's okay. That's normal. What does Jesus have in mind when he says folks who sin against us, brothers or sisters who sin against us? Scriptures spend a lot of time defining sin. Someone who envies us is a sin against us. 
Envy is this crazy thing that's really hard to see in ourselves. It's easy to see in other people. But envy is when we have a difficult time rejoicing with those who rejoice in their good fortune, in their excellent abilities, in their skills, in their talents. I struggle with this, by the way. I struggle with appreciating other people's strengths sometimes. My initial response is, how come I'm not better than them? That's envy. And that's a sin against someone. Now, that's an attitude, and it may not manifest itself as sin, but it can start manifesting itself as sin, especially when I go behind people and say, oh, they're really not that good. Oh, I heard this about them. And now we've delved into gossip. Anybody experienced gossip before? Sin against somebody. The Bible says lying, bearing false witness, bearing false testimony against somebody is a sin. To lie about someone, about a situation is a sin. To hurt somebody physically. Because I think murder includes a lot more than just actually killing someone. Because Jesus raises the ante in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, if any of you hates your brother, you are in danger, he says. He doesn't say you've sinned yet because Paul says in one of his writings, in your anger, do not sin. So anger is not a sin, but we're starting to get in some territory that's dangerous. Because anger can propel a lot of sin. Physically hurting someone, intentionally, even unintentionally, is sin. Saying mean, nasty things to somebody is a sin. Even when they're not present, is a sin. Being greedy makes a lot of the sinless in the scriptures. Wanting to hoard and store up for me is a sin and it's greed and it's wrong. Lust, according to Jesus, is a sin. Those looks, men, are not okay. Interesting, people watching experiment. I've shared this with my wife. Women, men, watch other men as a nice, pretty woman walks by and see what he watches. Where do his eyes go? Sin. And it's a sin against her. And ladies, you're not off the hook. Because Jesus would call some of the glances that women give men. And sadly, in our day and age, the glances that men give men and women give women are all sin. Sex outside of the context, the covenant of marriage, sin. That means before you're married. Since you're not married, you're not in the covenant, the context of marriage, that's sin. And once you're married, it's okay with that person. Nobody else. It's sin. These are all sins against God, against other people. And if you think I'm Mr. Looking Down My Nose pointing at you, and if you feel that way, 
don't because it's pointing at me. That's what the scriptures do. They, they have a scalpel, it says in Hebrews. The word of God is a scalpel and it makes cuts that are deep to the marrow, to the tendons, to the ligaments because there's cancer in there and it got to get it out. All of us are guilty of sin. And this tells us that when our brother or sister sins against us, because that will happen, we all know what that looks like. Probably don't need to go on that anymore. We're supposed to what? Rebuke them. This is a step that's missing in our culture. This is a step that's missing in the church. Why would we miss this step? Because it ain't fun. Because this is hard. Because this is painful. But it says, Jesus himself says, rebuke them. Somebody sins against you, rebuke them. The word rebuke is not this, you're such a jerk, you shouldn't do that against me anymore. That's sin and you're compounding the whole situation. A rebuke is always given in love and always given for their benefit You see, if we allow sin to go on and we don't confront it, it will continue to happen. And the person probably doesn't even know that they're doing it sometimes. I had a friend, his name was Ken West, spoke of him many times. And I sinned against Ken and he came and he rebuked me. It wasn't very fun. And I could have defended myself. It would have been pretty vain to do that because he knew and I knew I had messed up but he loved me enough and why do I have to go back 10 years to a man who did that to me because it's so rare that somebody would rebuke me that somebody would rebuke you that they would come alongside of you and out of love to say you hurt me when you say those words about me And it gets back to me, it hurts. When you look at a woman, husband, it hurts. When you treat me this way, it hurts. There's pain there. There's an issue on the table. And oftentimes when we don't rebuke, the issue's still on the table, isn't it? We just have other ways of dealing with it. We ignore people. We make brief eye contact and then we both look the other way. We see them down the aisle at supers and we find something else to do in the store. A coworker, we see them coming, we find somewhere else, something else to go and do. We avoid their place of business. We quit sitting next to them at church. We don't shake their hand. We stay away. Many times we become indifferent towards people. And indifference is ugly because it's even worse than anger because indifference says you are invisible. You don't exist any longer. At least anger and being angry with somebody, you acknowledge their existence. But indifference is even worse. 
These are ways we respond and we deal with the issue that's on the table. But Jesus says the way you deal with the issue on the table is you sit and you talk about the issue that's on the table. Duh. (laughs) He must be God or something. Figure that one out. Because the rest of us are like, "Eh, I don't want to talk about the elephant in the room. I mean, I see it. Everybody knows it's there. But I ain't going to talk about the elephant in the room. Jesus says you got to talk about the elephant in the room. When it's a sin elephant, talk about the sin elephant. Get it out. Deal with it. That's the first step in true forgiveness. To truly forgive someone who has sinned against you, you've got to rebuke them. You've got to confront them. And may I, before you start thinking about all the people that you need to get in their face on, Remember, this isn't the annoying people. This isn't the irritating people. This isn't the folks that you just don't see eye to eye with. This is folks who have hurt you and sinned against you. Because if you make everything a Luke 17 issue, you, nobody's going to be your friend any longer. And if you make others' people's, their sin against God or against somebody else, your thing to rebuke them... It's not your place. Jesus says, if a brother or sister sins against you. Some of us, we really like to police other people. Tell them, oh, that, you're sinning. It's horrible. And we find, that's like our calling or something. And it's not your calling. If they sin against you, it's your calling. If they sin against you, rebuke them. And then Jesus says this, and if they repent... Forgive them. So back to Alice Matthews. A trial is a form of rebuke, wouldn't you say? A trial where a man is found guilty of taking the life of someone else is a rebuke. Two years spent in prison is a rebuke that that behavior is sin. He was rebuked. He was rebuked by the society, by the law, by the magistrates, by the courts, by the prison system. He was rebuked. Alice sat in that courtroom each day. Her presence rebuked him. Her tears rebuked him. Her sobbing rebuked him each day that he had sinned against her, against her son Kent. He did not repent. By the way, repent's a little bit more than saying you're sorry. In fact, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures outline how true repentance should look. And true repentance always has this notion that you will stop it. That you will turn from the direction you're heading in and you will go the other way. So a man who has three strikes against him as far as drunk driving, he's not showing any repentance. And for him to turn around the other way would be to stop that behavior. That's repentance. The other part of of repentance and not being, I'm sorry, is... Recompense. 
the Old Testament talks about paying back those we have injured. And in our court system, we've got a way to kind of keep a cap on that. Because when somebody takes our tooth out, we want to take their head off. It's just human nature. When somebody hurts us, we want to up the ante and hurt them plus a little bit with interest. And that's why we have court systems to help govern that so that people don't say, you hurt me, it's worth $10 billion. And so when the courts say that this man will spend two years in jail, it doesn't quite feel just, but it's still something. But repentance always involves turning around and paying something back because true sin against us means that there is a debt owed. You know how that feels, right? Somebody keys your car, the Walmart in Fort Morgan. It's a debt owed, isn't there? Who did this? They need to make this right. Somebody backs over your mailbox. Who did this? They need to fix this. Somebody hurts one of your kids. What? They need to pay for this. They, they, they owe me. They owe my kid. We know this instinctively. It's just part of us. And Jesus says, if they repent, forgive them. So how did we get to this notion of forgive and forget? Jesus never said that. Never once is it in the Bible. Because you can't forget. And by the way, God does not forget your sins. He chooses to remember them differently. He forgets them in the sense that he doesn't hold them against you anymore. The debt has been paid if you place your trust in Christ. But he doesn't forget. If he forgot, he wouldn't know much. Because that's about all there is to human history. And you can't be an all-knowing God if you forget most everything that happened. You can't make it your goal to forgive and forget somebody. But you can make it your goal for true repentance to rebuke someone. In love. Tell them how they've injured you. Explain it. And then when we are rebuked, Jesus says our response should be one of humility, one of humble repentance. I'm sorry. I... I did not know, or I did know, and I ask you to forgive me. Do you know how powerful that phrase is? Will you forgive me? I've tried that with my children because I'm sick of them. I'm sorry, you know, because we force them and we make them. There's no power in I'm sorry because all the kids know you're not sorry. You're just being, you're just saying that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It just gets crazy. It's like I want to hit people and then I got to say I'm sorry, right? (laughs) But when I force them to say, Dave, I want you to ask for forgiveness. Bailey has made it clear you have wronged her. Everybody knows. Kids are good at rebuking each other. Maybe Jesus said that's why we got to be like children. 
you get rebuked, you can defend yourself, or you can humble yourself. And you can say, please forgive me. I believe Alice Matthews does not have to forgive that man. According to the scripture, according to Jesus himself, Alice Matthews does not have to forgive that man. Not now, not yet. If she were to forgive him, it'd be like kicking it under the rug. Like her son didn't matter. Like that pain was no big deal. And that's what a lot of us do when somebody hurts us, doesn't it? We kick it under the rug. We don't ever rebuke in love. We just go, well, you know, I'll try to be nice. I'll try to get, not think about it. I'll try to get over it. Because if I don't get over it, then I'm always going to be stuck here. And they'll have this power over me. And those things are somewhat true. But we don't forgive people for our benefit. We forgive them for theirs. And if they don't repent, do you know what Alice Matthews needs to do with this Frenchman? Romans 12 tells us what she needs to do. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Vengeance is totally okay. (laughs) Do you realize that? Wrath is okay. Because one day God, who never sins, is going to visit planet Earth in wrath and in vengeance. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. There is a debt owed, and he will make sure it's paid back. For those of us who have injured folks and are unrepentant, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. For those of us who don't take sin seriously, be afraid. Be very afraid. It goes on to tell Alice how to treat him. She's not supposed to seek revenge, but she's supposed to. Next slide. Next slide, please. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. (laughs) You see, the Bible's ethic is that we act in love. Always. Love is unconditional. Forgiveness is not. If you don't believe me, let's think about how God handles these things. A couple weeks ago, we talked about John 3.16. For God so loved the world. He loves us unconditionally, all of us. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less. You're stuck. He loves you. Sorry. But if we don't confess our sins, if we don't repent of our sins, he doesn't forgive He's not on the hook to forgive you. If he chose to forgive you without your repentance, he's sweeping your sin under the rug. He's sweeping the world's sin under the rug. On this day, 9-11, and with this, I will really try to wrap this up. Vengeance, justice is so hard in a situation like 9-11, like planes going down and the perpetrators dying. Because 
We don't get our day in court. Heads don't roll. They already did. I felt this way when the Columbine massacre happened. They killed themselves. Now what? What do we do? They can't beg for repentance. They can't beg for mercy. They can't beg for forgiveness. We, they can't even admit it. It just happened. They're gone. They're dead. What do I do? Am I stuck with that? Tell you what, I don't forgive. Yeah, you heard a pastor say that. I don't forgive them. But I leave room for God's vengeance. It's vengeance is his. So I love their parents, the young men that did the Columbine shootings. I look for ways to care about those who are left in the wake of disaster. And I don't seek to minimize the pain. Because minimizing the pain, sweeping it under the rug, is not at all what the scriptures call us to do. Let's say I was walking down the road in Ray, and I saw a husband and a wife out on a bike ride. And there was an argument. And they stopped their bikes, and the husband starts beating his wife. And I were to say, you know what? God loves you both the exact same amount. He's not mad with either of you right now. Everything's cool. God is love. I'm a jerk. God does love them, but he's a little upset with the fellow who's hitting his wife. And I should be too, because love values justice. Love values truth. Love has no part with evil. And so my job right then is to grab the woman, to yell at the top of my lungs for help, and to run away from the man who's hitting her. That's the loving thing to do. It's not to turn a blind eye. It's to rebuke him. Call 911. It's to see how he deals with the rebuke. You see, God cares about justice and righteousness and truth too much to turn a blind eye to sin in the world. That's why he sent his son Christ. That's why he sent Jesus to die for our sins. Because he takes it so seriously. So remember this. True forgiveness means you must rebuke and love those who have hurt you, who have wronged you, have sinned against you. And true forgiveness requires their repentance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to meditate and think about these things. And especially as we think about those who have sinned against us. And if we have sinned against anyone, you would help us to be folks who keep short account. Help us to be like kids who just get it out, get it done with. Help us to be uh, truthful with each other, with ourselves with those who have hurt us. And I pray, Father, if somebody in the next few weeks comes to us and says, you have hurt me, you have sinned against me, we would have a spirit of humility that you would help us hear it, that you would help us repent. And those of us who need to say hard things to someone, that you'd give us strength, Holy Spirit, and that you would help us to forgive 
And Lord, if folks don't repent, even when confronted with the facts, help us to treat them in love. Leave room for you to make things right. It's not our job. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you love others well, even those who have hurt you by rebuking them, by forgiving them when they repent. Amen.